0: Not only was I coming into a company that I didn't in an industry that I had no no real inkling about, but the company was also kind of on the rocks. I think the founder had at the time outsourced all sales and service to a third party company, and uh, during that time, it was a complicated business relationship that had you know really kind of turned. It had been very successful initially, and then things had kind of changed over time, right. and so my the landscape of what was here was this very complicated relationship between the, the people that some of the people that continue to work here or work with us as contractors. Uh, that business and our clients uh, really was a complex kind of thing to navigate. And I think you know, really it was all kind of comes back down to doing the right thing delivering you know, that service, that rock-solid service that's part of our core values, that really is part of the DNA of this business.
1: Welcome to Verify in Fields, the Millwork Podcast. Your host, Jacob Edmond, CEO of DuckWorks, will be interviewing experts in the industry to bring you insights and knowledge about the latest trends, techniques, and challenges in millwork. Whether you're a seasoned professional or just starting out, this podcast is for you. So sit back, relax, and join us as we explore the world of millwork. Here's Jacob. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Verify and Field. Today, we have David Fairbanks with us. I'm excited about today's episode. Um, David, uh, as most of you probably know, but if you don't, he is the president and owner of Microvellum. Um, And if you go back to actually, I think our second episode, we had some of his team. We talked about the foundation library. Um, Today, we're going to find out a little bit more about David, his background before Microvellum and his journey to... uh, to to Microvellum and, and what he's learned about the millwork field today. Thanks for joining today, David.
0: Jacob, thanks so much for having me on. I'm honored to be on your podcast and a big fan of you and what you're doing for this industry. So th- thanks again.
1: Absolutely. Um. Well, awesome. So I think to get started, uh, would you maybe share a little bit about your background that people maybe don't know? Because um, you started before... Uh, Mike Rovellum, before getting into the millwork industry, you started out in engineering and in software and had um, a little bit of a career before uh, what you're doing today. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, you know, uh, I, was, I was forced into the millwork industry from a layoff, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> so, Um I was laid off uh, from a, a, a job where I was running operations, uh, kind of in a local business here in... Um, the Rogue Valley in Oregon. And I was, uh, scared, a scared pup. I had a young family uh, that was 11 years ago, uh, 2013. And I heard about Microphone through one of the corporate lawyers that I had worked with there at the company where I was serving. And, um, Clay Swayze, who's still on the team here, uh, called me uh, after that lawyer had floated my name up because I was looking for a job. And a few weeks later, I was working at Microvellum. Uh, so I, something I did not intend to come into the millwork industry or even uh, really knew much about the the vast, exciting world, that uh, entrepreneurial world that this is. And so... I'm super blessed uh, to have that opportunity and um, then finding myself in the position that I am a few years after that, um, it just makes me excited to continue to, I get to be the, the leader of this company and I'm so, so excited about that and blessed uh, in in so many different ways um, honoring uh, my talents and the things that I do. Yeah, I came from um, an environmental engineering background, uh, that was my degree uh, and I know, um, knew kind of going into that, that I really had a affinity for being a part of the decision-making process and change and things that really allowed me to grow. And so as I was an engineer, I realized that, uh, I wanted more. And so I ended up going back to to school. I worked, uh, and went, put myself through grad school and got a, a degree in, um, industrial engineering and a a master's um, in business alongside that same time. So that was kind of a new journey for me. And that was sort of all happening at the same time with the dot-com age back in 99, um, um, uh, 2000, the the dot-com thing was happening. And I was so excited about computers and software and became excited about ERP and ended up uh, leaving the engineering world and working for IBM. It was very difficult, uh, actually, for that to happen because they kept asking, what does an environmental engineer want to do working at IBM? And it was uh, something that I had to really just sort of think about my future and, and how I could help um, solve problems and kind of changing the way that I – Interacted uh, with them helped me get that job. And because of that, I got into some really great projects at IBM. I learned a lot. And then I ended up um, working for one of my clients doing an ERP implementation, which is what I really set out to do. And so, and at that point, um, that was uh, with a stud sensor company in uh, called uh, Zircon. They make the handheld mm-hmm. stud finders. Yeah. So I was the... The guy um, doing all the IT work behind the scenes for fulfillment, and we implemented a software package called JD Edwards at the time. Well, that was the first of 12 ERP systems that I've implemented since then, um, including one here at uh, Microvellum here just uh, this last year so. Um, I have uh, a passion for kind of seeing how software can help streamline and organize business and because of that first opportunity that I had with IBM and at that company there um, it just kind of set me on this path from transitioning from environmental engineering into uh, streamlining uh, business with with software and so here here we are at microvellum and I'm excited to see uh, what we can be doing here for this industry
1: yeah so uh, to recap a little bit make sure I, you know I got the timeline straight. so you you were environmental engineering and working in environmental engineering, and then you went back to school and and, and then went to work for IBM. Is that right? That's right. Um, and that, that's how you got into, you went back to school, got your MBA and got into software um, and then went to IBM. And from there, got into ERP implementations. Um, and so through that process was how you ended up at the company that went through the layoff before you went to Microphone right?
0: Yeah, that's right. Yep.
1: Okay. And so what was your last role? Like, what were you doing with that company right before you ended up coming to microfilm?
0: Yeah, so I I ended up um, running the very last role I was in, I was in uh, production, basically, I I managed the assembly process within the, the company. And so there was and ahead of that, I had done purchasing. So I ran purchasing and handed that off to a supply chain expert at the time, the company had gone through a bankruptcy and I was, uh, I had, which was a f- amazing experience to be perfectly honest. I had a ball with it. It was, mm-hmm. I learned a ton about business and how to, uh, really help a company get past some of the, the difficult financial things that they were doing. Yeah. Um, and that equipped equipped me for some of the things that we had to do here at Microvellum. Actually, when I first got here,
1: yeah.
0: Um, but so I was running running a, an assembly process. So we had, you know, supply. I had to order supply. I had to uh, help set up the lines and manage the teams that would do the assembly and pack out the the finished product. Um, so I was in charge for of uh, managing parts and part tracking and uh, the, the final assembly into the warehouse for distribution. Um, at that point there was a sort of a redundancy with that position. Um, there was a a different person there and they were going through a purchase. So the buyout of the company was coming. I didn't really know that. And so I had led, led through a lot of different operational processes with that bankruptcy ended up turning, fixing and running purchasing, and then handing that over to an expert. I went into production, and then I ended up basically um, just redundant at that point. Yeah, and so
1: no, that's I how I
0: ended up being available. Yeah,
1: I remember you sharing some of that with me because there's there's been a you know, I've I've made some career moves through my through my career, and you've acted as advisor and mentor for for me. And I remember having I think a conversation. You shared some of that with me because my last role I was very similar. You know, went through. um, uh, a wind down and acquisition of sorts or sell off of uh, asset sale and similarly my role you know no longer existed and I remember you sharing a little bit about that and it's one of those things that definitely uh, you learn a lot through that process um, that that shapes obviously your, your your future going forward And you can understand and kind of see those things of so anybody listening has probably been through acquisition or Uh business transition that a lot of times those go hand in hand is hey, where where are the redundancies? Where are the things that we can we can trim and and minimize? Um Yeah,
0: and, and look at you now. Yeah. You know, you've got your you've got a business, um and you've been able to really make the best of it in a lot of different ways. This podcast, um, you're really influencing the industry and and the same with me, the opportunities that, that one opportunity, that door closing and another one opening, you, know, you always hear that, Yeah. Uh, but really, um, yeah, it's just amazing to see how that uh, kind of transpires.
1: Yeah. Sometimes that kind of forces you into a decision you, you wanted to make or were going to make, but you, you know, you didn't have to until the, the circumstances kind of kick you, kick you into gear. And, and I'm de- I know yeah. I'm definitely grateful for it. And I think you, you're, you're a great example of that as well. So you came into MicroVelm then, you know, through, um, these circumstances and opportunity, you know, talk a little bit about, uh, when you came to MicroVelm, uh, what did you find and kind of, how did you start, um, diving in and, and getting your hands dirty? Like what, what was the state of the company at that point? And, you know, cause I know you came in for a specific job and initially it wasn't, Hey, I'm coming and I'm going to buy this company, right? Like you were coming in to do a job and the, business was at that point still owned by i think the founder right um mr peel um he talked a little bit about how things started where it was at that point we'll be back after a quick break you love listening to podcasts but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast maybe you want to build a brand grow your business or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby whatever your reason for making a podcast buzzsprout is the place to start Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today.
0: Yeah, you know, that was a... That was a crazy time, Uh, you know. Not only was I coming into a company that I didn't in an industry that I had no no real inkling about, um, but the company was also kind of on the rocks. I think uh, Dave was Dave Peel, the founder, um, had at the time outsourced all sales and service to a third party company, and uh, during that time, it was a complicated business relationship that had you know really kind of turned um over time it had been very successful initially and then things had kind of changed over time right and so my the landscape of what was here was this very complicated relationship between the the people that some of the people that continue to work here or work with us as contractors uh that business and our clients uh really was a complex kind of thing to navigate. And I think, you know, really, it was all kind of comes back down to doing the right thing, delivering, you know, that service, that rock solid service, that's part of our core values, that really is part of the DNA of this business. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a, a great deal of passion on the people that work in this industry and work for microvellum and work with microvellum and a belief in the capabilities and and ability to solve problems that I think is uncanny, and the thing that really attracted me and really helped me fall in love with this business. So, um, but but navigating that at the time, you know, from difficult uh, implementations that went sideways um, to really trying to, con- you know, keep financially uh, aground for some time. Um, that was a, a key thing. So my job really was to come in as the basically sales manager. I had no experience in sales, zero, none. I had no idea. It was one of those things like sales. What do you, you know, that's that's a car salesman. What do you mean yeah. by sales, you know? But really, I had I kind of looked back and I I actually went to a training class that changed my life, and I had so much fun with it because what it was, was solving problems. It was all about crafting and aligning how you could piece together parts of what you have to make a positive outcome, to create that next thing. And so what, with the people that were here with the tools that we had and the desire to survive, uh, we were able to kind of turn things around and, um, instead of uh, alienating our clients, we brought them in. In fact, one of the things that we did is we created sort of a user advisory board of which you were a part of. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of that was to really get in tune with what we're hearing from our clients to help make sure that we were um, serving them as opposed to, you know, uh, someone else. And so um, that was a a huge, (laughs) huge benefit there. So yeah, I, I didn't come in knowing that I would um, even had the the slightest inkling that I would ever be in the position that I'm in today. Right. Um, I was going there to basically get have a job, and I found myself uh, being able to take on challenges that kind of like I did in the past, where they they were big projects, ERP projects for large companies, or a bankruptcy for a company that I was in, and then similar kind of a thing here where i could help to to shape um uh, the sales and service so that we could do the right thing for the customer base. Yeah. Um and I, I think that that's sort of the uh the 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 common theme among my in my career.
1: Yeah. So there's two interesting pieces that, or ideas i can, in what you just shared that i, I want to unpack a little bit. One is talking about sales and you touched on this, that kind of like before you Um, came there you you didn't have you know hands-on experience with sales and maybe had an idea that I think many people do of sales of like almost this kind of like uh disdainful profession of like convincing people to spend money on things they don't need I think it's a lot of times the connotation it gets right um but what what good sales really becomes and I'm interested your your thoughts on this and kind of advice for people but I think, especially coming from maybe an engineering background, because this is kind of how I think. Like, I, I don't consider myself a good salesman, but um, when I like when you're solving problems for a people, like as a business, that's really what a business is, right? You know, a lot, most businesses start as you're solving a problem, and then people give you money to help solve that problem, and it becomes a business, right? Um, it may be a service, it might be a product, it might be software, whatever it is. And and when you really know that solution, you believe in it. it, it's not really sales in in the common, I I think, misconception people have of it. It's how do I get the service, the thing that we do well to the people who need it, and how do we use the business that we've created to creatively solve those problems for people? Um, And I think when you get to that point and you know I can help this person solve a problem, the, the sales is secondary, right? And it's kind of inherent of like i want to help them solve a problem and this is how i can do it by making this sale so to speak um is that ring you know true with you at all and kind of what your experience was of getting into one rewriting the ship and kind of bringing sales internally it seems like also was probably a little bit of that getting back to the core uh, values of the business of hey we're not just outsourcing this not you know because that is a model that can work and is successful but Hey, let's get it back to we're actually solving problems for people not just trying to 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 make a sale. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think it all goes back to the authenticity of what you're trying to provide right so um it you know I think you'll in the industry you'll hear it's consultative sales you know mm-hmm. t- to me it's about it's about um I have a I have a tool chest, a toolbox, which happens to be the name of our product, which is kind of funny, but I have a <laughs> toolbox and that toolbox is made up of service and a, and a software tool and these multiple things in there. How can we couple those, pair them to, and, and how do I, how do, am I listening specifically to what's going on to shape a solution that we can present that provides an ROI Mm -hmm. and that to me, there's gotta be a reason to do it. And I I think the biggest thing is being able to communicate how you take those tools, couple them with the people part of it to enable a company to transform what they're doing to go from, you know, some of the manual processes that they may have to, to, that they can rely on and they do really well to this other thing where they see themselves, you know, kind of envision themselves, uh, walking into the office with the hum of things just happening because it's flowing from, you know, from the, the start of this automation, that's able, you have to be able to paint that picture, that vision, and knowing that you got to start with the little, the little bits and grow with it over time. Um, that, that is the joy of selling and, it's an interesting concept that I never, ever as a going to school, as a (laughs) uh, engineer ever thought I'd be a part of that. I end up just absolutely loving. Um, and actually it is engineering. It's just a different thing. So I I love that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now what you just described reminds me of, um, I don't know if you've heard of Donald Miller, but, um, he is a, a, a coach, a, a writer, uh, you know, and he's developed this process called brand script or story brand. Um, but it's all about basically the idea of making your customer, your client, the hero in their own story, and as opposed to, hey, I'm selling you, I'm selling you microvellum, and this is why it's so great. It's no, through working with microvellum, the you're painting this picture like you just described with the customer. Hey, look, wouldn't it be great if you came in every day, and what you're trying to do is made easier by incorporating microfilm as a part of your process as opposed to, here's why microfilm is so great. It's, hey, look, this is what it's going to enable you to do. And what your goal is as a customer, your customers isn't to use microfilm. Their goal is to make a product. And that's one of the tools they're going to use to get there. And so the idea of painting a picture of what problem are you solving for your customer um, and, and how does it enable them to be the hero in their own journey?
0: Yeah. You know, I think, yeah, you have to you have to have that vision of um, where like exactly like what you said. And at, at Microvellum, actually, we spent some time putting this down. It sounds so simple. And, you know, these statements, uh, when they're written, they look so trite. And But it really is true. And I think it's core to who we are as a company. But And I'm just going to read it because I think it's, it says a lot about what we just were talking about. But, you know, our vision at Microvellum, is we see a world where people have the freedom and flexibility to create extraordinary things with ease, and so for everything that we do, from the software that we create, from the projects that we we provide, uh, from you know the the tools that we are um, and the services that we are are trying to to, to provide is are all aligned around trying to. Get to that unattainable vision. That unattainable vision will keep us going forever. and whatever however we end up doing that is my goal and what we are aligned here to to try and do. And I, I just I think um, that that really encapsulates a lot of what we were just talking about is <laughs> the selling part really is about casting a vision that we can be a part of. It's not everything. It's just a part of, and, um, I, I love to see the transformation of companies in this industry go from what they were doing to what they could do. And it's just a great to hear the stories in the industry where that it has been successful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah the other, the other piece of kind of what, what you were describing that I wanted to unpack in and. and- Kind of get your your thoughts on is the idea of you described you know you never anticipated or kind of envisioned yourself here even when you came to microbomb it wasn't oh I'm going to be the owner or president or whatever one day right um, and throughout your career it's been about problem solving right you know with that engineer mindset how am I solving another problem and kind of building on what I've known to solve bigger and better problems to some extent and I'm sure you get this, but, you know, a lot of times you get to a stage in your career and then younger, earlier career people will reach out and like, hey, you know, how do I get to where you are? And what advice would you have for me? You know, and I think a lot of times young people think about like, okay, how do I jump to this person? I'm, you know, where they're at and, but that's not how you get there. Right. And it's not that you planned and set out on this journey with the end goal being, being owner and president of Microbeam, but you ended up there. And so I think it's the idea of the advice to those that, you know, I usually try to give is in general, if you are solving problems for your company, for your boss, for your peers, for your, you know, coworkers, um, you're adding value and, and that's really what it's about. And through that you're learning and you're getting experience, but too, as long as you're adding value, there's a need, you're going to have gainful employment, those types of things. Like, is there any kind of core advice you would offer to younger career, people about how to think about that and how to take action today without knowing exactly where you're going to end up.
0: Yeah, I think the key is being technical early in your career, Um, staying technical. It's easy to um, do something that isn't adding, like you just said, adding value Um, Mm -hmm. and it, but really becoming an expert in a particular kind of facet that doesn't matter what it is really will help you from a technical standpoint, be able to have the chops to be able to talk to um, any industry in any way, because then you're able to apply what you've learned from that one other technical thing to the other. So, yeah, I mean, I, maybe I'm biased, but jumping from uh, you know, a pure kind of you know generic sort of education or training into this, like what for me I think would be impossible because I think I had um, a little bit of even though I didn't know the industry, I did have a background in you know manufacturing, industrial engineering, software that kind of coupled together at one time um, and experience over time that allowed me to have meaningful conversations with the people that work here um, and to prove that, you know, yeah, we could, we could get from A to B. And so without that technical deep dive, you know, early in your career uh, where you're adding value and you're solving problems, um, I think it would be difficult to get much farther unless you're just lucky for some reason, Um, super lucky. So. I think my advice is, is stay technical early in your career and then it will, it'll kind of come, yeah. opportunities will come.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, so related to that, um, cause you've mentioned, you know, that you didn't come from millwork industry initially, right? Your, your experience has been since you've been a realm. but, um, and I think our industry now, millwork is, you know, these are my words, I think is one that likes to to gatekeep. So, so uh, a lot of, you know, and I think, uh, well, you know, if you didn't grow up on the shop floor, you didn't spend 10 years installing, you didn't do this stuff, right? Like you're not, you're not one of us type, uh, mindsets a lot of times. Um, and I think unfortunately a lot of that mindset can limit people, limit organizations from gaining valuable knowledge from external sources. Um, or from people that have a lot of knowledge. And so to that point, I guess, are there things that looking back now from your technical hands-on experience prior to microboam that have carried over or you've been able to reach back in that toolbox and say, well, this is something I can leverage. This is experience I'm drawing on. This is knowledge I have now that I'm able to apply in this new industry, this new situation.
0: Yeah, you know, you just touched on something. So the reason why I left engineering was because I was limited because of that exact mindset Mm -hmm. um i think that there are you know individuals that really are you know they're better at the details in engineering than i ever would have been right um but there's different different kind of levels to that technical deep dive that you can do and people may get joy more joy from that very very detail engineering and development over time than I was getting. And I I felt limited and it wasn't moving fast enough and it wasn't big enough for my personality.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so um, I I was kind of just thinking back when you were talking about why I left engineering was because of the exact thing that I think could happen in, you know, where you said there's a gate, so to speak, or a um, rite of passage that you have to have to even get into the to the back office where the mm-hmm. engineering is done, right? Um, and so, you know, I think you have to have a good environment that the the company that you're working at has to believe in uh, growth of the individuals and have an interest in in that for them to continue to grow. Um, and so, and if that's not happening, and you have that kind of calling, then it could be a calling for a change and and to find a place that where you can do that. Um, is is important and I think um, you got to be willing to to get out on a limb and do that type of thing so that a little bit more advice there on that same that same topic I think Um,
1: yeah and and so now you know over the last what is it 10 11 12 years now you've been at microvellum Um, you know so you spent you you had many years experience in engineering and in kind of software proper and some other industries were there anything, Is there anything you've learned since being in the millwork industry and really fully immersed in this kind of bubble we live in sometimes to an extent, right? Um, as every industry kind of is. Um, are, there, are, are there any learnings, one, that you've learned that's unique about millwork? Um, or two, any things that kind of is more kind of common and, and true of just people and organizations that you found was true outside of millwork as well?
0: I find this industry very entrepreneurial. I think that stands out to me i love I love seeing the craftsman um turn into um uh, a technologist. It's kind of where the craft meets tech mm-hmm. and um you know the the, the material of wood and the wood products and technology with robots and CNC and software, that mixture is pretty, very, very unique. Um, I mean, there's some other industries that are similar, but I love the entrepreneurial, um, prowess that this, the people in this industry have, I love that they're trying to create a place for young workers. Um, I love their passion for education, for, uh, you know, getting more people in this industry. Um, and I think the other thing that sticks out, so not only is it entrepreneurial, but it also is behind the times. I mean, mm-hmm. I, th- I feel like there is a, a speed at which the rest of the, or many, many other industries move that, uh, we, this, our industry is just behind in, right. and. Um, there's so much opportunity there for the, for the businesses to to excel and find the right mix of craft and tech i mean it just it can happen um, and so um, i think those are kind of the key key learnings um, to be able to support that young entrepreneur or that one that started in the in the industry and is branching out on their own and starting up their own shop um, to the ones that are you know, highly automated where, you know, the, they have many machines or many lines or many plants potentially as well. So, um, I, I just love the, the difference, um, mm-hmm. seeing, seeing how those different size companies and how they work together and how they've transformed over time, um, really just impact our, our community.
1: Yeah, I was I was thinking as you were describing because you know I I I would totally agree you know entrepreneurial and and, and I would say maybe slow to change, um and I, I if anything I think they're probably related you know or inter intertwined those two characteristics and that if we were to personify the architectural millwork industry into into a character a person right um <laughs> I would see this and it, it is a uh, kind of a later career entrepreneur or business owner that started as, you know, a one-man garage shop and kind of developed into, almost begrudgingly into a full-blown business, right? And and, and this is true for many many of the shops in in our industry, right? It's, hey, it started small and it really grew over many decades, but it's still being run mostly by a, 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 a single entrepreneur. And that entrepreneur kind of has, a way of doing things that has been developed through experience, through trial and error, and has kind of ingrained itself into, hey, this is the way we do this because it's proven. But what comes with that is a resistance to change because, no, I'm going to stick with what I know works. Um, and so I think that, that that characteristic of our industry as a whole, of being sl- resistant to change, slow to change, kind of waiting to see how this new technology works, let other people try it, And we'll adopt it, you know, in 10 years once it's proven, Um, I think is related to that entrepreneurial side of things because so much of our industry is, uh, you know, is an established business that is um, slow to change and and slow to take big risks that are going to put the business, put their people at risk of, um, but has sustained through crises and, um, and downturns and things like that. Um, so you know, I know me being, you know, early career, young, coming up in this industry, that was always a frustrating thing for me. I'd be like, look at whatever all these other people are doing. Why are we not doing that? Why are we not taking advantage of this or adopting these new things? But on the other side of that is, Hey, you know, you, you don't understand what it is to run a business and how much risk that puts us in and how much that costs and what if it fails and all those types of things. So I think I mean, it's interesting to to hear your perspective and how I think what that entrepreneurship really probably informs and, and shapes that resistance to, to change. Um, and similarly, you know, like my my previous company, USA Millwork, I think is another example of that it's very quick, very hard for innovation to last in this industry, because there's a lot of things that are so um, ingrained and proven that the way they work is how they work.
0: Yeah. And I think, One of the limiters for the entrepreneurial entrepreneurs trying to to grow is talent. Mm -hmm. And I think they often, what I see is catering to an individual because they do things a certain way. And it's proven, like you said, and to change means that that person has to change. And then that person changing is a difficult conversation. (laughs) <laughs> difficult for them to know that they need to change, and then that entrepreneur gets stuck because the risk of losing or alienating or um, providing a new work working environment is greater than the benefit they feel is greater than the benefit and the, and the return on investment that they that and they can't see past that. Yeah, um, I, I think I think that's a huge limiter also for this industry and it probably is it's not just this industry but we definitely see it here for sure
1: um it, it is very rampant in our industry because i did you know my first year at, with duckworks i traveled and consulted with, with you know over a dozen companies um went on site and it was owners reaching out and saying hey how how can we improve our engineering how can i get to where engineering is on our bottleneck what should we be doing what best practice do we be improving and every business was unique they had different product types some used microfilm some used other software um you know there were there were things that were different about them but as I went and consulted with more and more companies there were certain things that I found to be common and very true across all of them and I kind of began to shape like oh this everybody's struggling with this and one of those things that was true for virtually every single company I went and visited with and, and almost everyone I worked for before that was just what you described. And, and I think it's due to the way this industry evolved. But if you imagine a company that's been started in the eighties or nineties, very, you know, you had a table saw, you had very manual processes. And then here comes CNC and here comes CAD cam software, right? And it's, Hey, let's buy a CNC. Now we need somebody to run and program that. Well, Joe, who has been on the shop floor for 10 years, uh, or 20 years, you know, let's move him into the office and he's going to learn CAD and he's going to develop that. That is like kind of in a nutshell how Millwork Design and Engineering, how every engineer that's out there today kind of started. That's how almost every company adopted the technology they have today. And what hasn't really happened since then is, well, how do we now make that person in, in, to replace them? Because all of these engineers are late career now. And so you have all these companies, and going back to the companies I was consulting with, and the common thing was you have these owners who have a, like a single, very tenured, trusted technical expert that is resistant to change and doesn't, isn't a very good teacher. He's very good at what he does. He's a safe set of hands. I know that when I give him a project, it's going to get done, it's going to get done right, and it's going to get done well. Nobody knows exactly how he does it, and he's not really equipped to. Teach somebody else what he does. Um, yeah. And so you have a bit a trouble, a difficult decision, and, and a difficult circumstance. And then you have an owner there saying, Hey, look, I, I'm trying to grow this business, and I actually have a lot more demand than I can handle right now. And I don't know how to work around this individual. I can't afford to lose him. And I can't afford to have that difficult conversation of like, Hey, you've been with me for 20 years, and you're great at what you do, and I can't afford to lose you, but I need you to change. And I need you to help me change and help me to grow what you're doing. And include other people and this was I found this repeated over and over again and it was like you find have a business that begins to try to work around this individual instead of through them and and they're at a crossroads um and I think that so many businesses in our industry are specifically at that stage right now and have some version of that that dilemma
0: yeah and guess whose fault that is
1: (laughs) I mean it's somewhat self-induced right
0: it is it's the it's that entrepreneur, it's that leader's fault. yeah. and what i what I find in any project that is going to make a change is the involvement of the top level leadership in that project and seeing its success is the number one change uh, or differentiator between a successful implementation of whatever the technology is and not. Their involvement, their front, front line leadership, not leading from the back, but leading from the front, where they're in there doing the work of seeing the project and and leading that change. That change can happen if that leader makes that choice to do that and puts maybe they have to sew a hole in their schedule or maybe they're gonna, going to go into have to work even more, which is hard to do. And they have all the pressures and challenges of that. But if you can get that leader, um, and and it could be a mid mid level leader, or Mm -hmm. could be the owner, or it depends on the kind of company it is. But if there is a true champion, that has that engineering, inquisitive mindset, that can lead through that project, that's the differentiator between the company that grows Mm -hmm. and it. And adopts technology to for the long run and the one that doesn't
1: yeah and I think you know and this is something that I I'm still learning but I, I learned a lot especially was by doing it wrong was and I think in engineering and in, in technical fields there it, it's very common that companies will take and they'll say hey I've got three or four engineers but Jacob is the most skilled you know, he's the most efficient, the most productive. He's now the leader of the group. Okay. And so you're promoting somebody who you think is most equipped to be the leader. Um, And so what my instinct was, and which is very common in that is, oh, that means that I'm doing a very good job. So everybody should be doing things exactly the way I do them. Um, So far seems logical, but the trouble comes in that, the way I've developed of doing things, the processes I've done are based around my knowledge, my skills, my how I'm equipped and how I understand things. That doesn't necessarily translate to everybody on my team. And so when, when you're trying to develop SOPs and processes and, hey, this is how we as a team are going to do things. One, it's very important that it's uniform and consistent um, when you're getting into scale and two, that it's, you know built for the least common denominator. Hey, you're entry-level people, you're people that may not, you know, like I, I personally, I have a really good grasp on trigonometry. I, I tend to, towards things that I may be strengths of mine and I'm gonna steer away from things that are weaknesses of mine and that's not necessarily the same for everybody on my team that I've hired. And so what happens is you end up with a leader that is trying to basically build process that says, well, I, this works when I do it. I can do this. I can remember to follow all these steps and that's easy for me. So everybody should do it exactly the way, the way I do. And then you have a bunch of people failing at the process and you're not really building the result the business needs. Um, And so that, that and a lot of times the business, then you're, you're real leaders over that and say, Hey, well, this isn't working. Let me pull this person out or what am I going to do here? Um, and from, from an outsider's perspective, you know, I went into many of these companies and it's easy to say, hey, you're gonna hire me to come in and consult and point out your problem. But as you, you alluded to, ultimately it's the leaders and the owners of that business who are gonna make a change. Like I can tell you, here's your problem and here's what you need to do, but you still have to do it. And that's where the hard part comes in. And I think so many owners struggle because when you get into things like engineering and any of the technical things is as an owner, you're not as deep as each, maybe your engineering manager. And it's very easy for them to kind of push back and say, well, I'm going to use a bunch of technical terms and give you reasons why we can't do what you're suggesting. And I think as an owner, you start to say, well, maybe he's right. I don't feel equipped to push back on this. Um, <laughs> but if you're managing to results and saying, look, here's the result I need. And I need a leader who's going to be able to get me those results, um, and not just try to replicate himself in a way that's not feasible. Um, so I think that it is a very difficult problem. And I think for, as I've seen now, and I know you have a lot of people struggle with, with it, um, in, in what you do now and at, at microvellum, um, how, how have you gone about, um, because you know, you're alluding to this, and I think you've had to make some difficult decisions around personnel and, and just business decisions and how you're structuring what you guys do. Uh, what advice do you have about uh, that, that type of dilemma for, for an entrepreneur or business owner?
0: Well, for better or worse, I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, we went through a, a systems swap out uh, we've done it a couple times, but um, the, the I think the difference this last time is that I did what I just said I did is to actually I became a part of learning and understanding and being able to translate the way our business works into that that solution. Um, so we replaced our entire financial system, our our um, our CRM our licensing system. We have a new portal all happened in basically about nine months, which is a huge endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> luckily I'd done it 11 times before, uh, not to my business. This is the first time really to my business. But again, what I, what I decided to do was really to lead from the front. And when, uh, when that happens, I am able to communicate with the people that are running it day to day about things that come up after the fact or how to design something. And I can actually guide, um, you know, in this case, the consulting company that helped us do it, I was able to guide them and direct them on how we needed it to work so that it worked within, you know, having that business, that understanding of how our business worked without that and that missing link and just giving it to somebody else without that real true passion about what needed to happen um, I think we would have failed it would have cost us double um, we would have had you know uh, it wouldn't have been done right and so my advice is get plugged in you know you learn and then use your delegation skills to get out of it basically you have to at that point coach ask questions and turn from the doer back into the leader uh, again um, so that your team is equipped to do what they do. And like you said, it has to be the lowest common denominator it has to be as bulletproof as possible for the people that come in that are new, brand new into the organization. Right. Um, you need to make it so that it's, it's repeatable. And, and, um, there's a certain tenaciousness that has to happen with that. So I think, um, for me, it's about high level leadership, plugging in, f- in the front, not in the back, you got to do it from the back. That's where everybody wants to be. But really in the front, and actually, that's where I find the most joy is in these big projects and problems that I get to solve.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because it, it really, you know, calls back to your advice earlier about getting starting technical. Um, and, and with this, what you just described is, well, we have a new you know software we need to implement, and we need to build it to work front to back. And and as a leader, I'm going to actually dive in hands on and understand what it needs to do, and I'm actually going to do that task process, whatever, and and set up to where now I can hand it off to somebody and delegate that and they have a process in place that they can replicate and I know it works. Um, but it starts with understanding and, and really getting hands on with it. And and that is something that I find, you know, even in, in consulting and I think probably a lot of this is with customers of, of a software like Microfilm is their owners are coming at w- with with an expectation of i'm going to buy a solution to a problem which is partly what you're mm-hmm. selling. but um really nothing is that simple of like there's no silver bullet to understanding hands on like what is what is the problem you're trying to solve and to be able to evaluate whether this one the software i'm trying to buy or this thing i'm trying to implement is going to do that and how it's going to do that um and and you guys i know it with microphone where is uh, very that that's how you present your product is as okay yes we have a library yes we have all these solutions but you as a customer as a consumer as a user need to take ownership of like how are we going to implement this and how are we going to use it and and what pieces of it make sense for our business um and i think that really goes with anything and a lot of times when you get into the weeds as a business owner of i just want this problem solved and i don't have the capacity to dive in um but nobody's really you know going to do that for you. If you do, you take the risk of uh, it not being really fully understood. Um, yeah. S- um, well, awesome. Or adopted. It. It or adopted. Adopt it.
0: You can't get it. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, really, you know, when it comes to solutions. You have
0: wasted a bunch of money.
1: Right. Yeah. It happens a lot. Hey, well, we've got this software we no. invested or this process we adopted and sitting on a shelf because nobody's adopted it. And that's Where I mean, change management is really where it comes in. Um, and I think that uh, it, it's not just writing a check, you know, the, the it's easy to write out a blueprint or an SOP or say, Hey, if you just do this, this and this works, but not the best solution doesn't matter if people don't use it. And th- this is actually something I, I learned in, in architecture school and really why I quit. It frustrated me because I would have these reviews and I was coming from a, a very practical mindset and what i didn't understand at the time was that in undergrad we were really learning about the design process you know and i was trying to be a contractor i was trying to say well this you couldn't build that because of this technical reason but um what it was is is okay you know there's a there's a process of of solving a problem and as it really was anything You know, But as an architect, if I was pitching my solution, it doesn't matter if my solution is the best solution. What matters is, is the customer going to buy it and are they going to use it and implement it? Because the best solution is really the one that actually gets used. Um, And there could actually be something that theoretically is better, but if nobody uses it, it's not better. Um, And I think that's the same thing with business processes, software, all the above. Um, well, before we, we wrap up, um, there's two questions I like to ask every guest and I'm curious to get your, your insights on this, on this idea of, um, the first being, what do you foresee changing in our industry, in the millwork industry over the next five to 10 years?
0: I see, um... I see high volume manufacturers getting pressure to do custom more and more. So in other words, sort of that mass customization in a lights out environment, Mm -hmm. I guess, where uh, there's demands from the market for things that aren't just the cookie cutter um, applications. And so uh, I believe that, this industry, um, basically will see more and more of that kind of automation mixed with the ability to customize very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, we see that today, obviously push to the cloud, right? So that's a big, a big one, which is so funny to me, because if you remember, um, everything used to be that way back in early days of computing, computing, and now we're kind of you know this industry is finally getting to that point where the whole um, PC server on-prem type thing is is going to migrate more and more back to the the large monolithic uh, cloud-based solutions that we used to have in the in the old days, but with the, with the modern platforms. So that that's obvious. You know, definitely obvious. Um, I think for Microvellum specifically. Um, I see us being. I would like to see us be uh, drawing tool agnostic, so not necessarily always an AutoCAD or always a Revit or a, always a Inventor, mm-hmm. but being able to manufacture data that's necessary to to create whatever they want with ease. Right, that goes back to our vision. Uh, despite the the drawing platform that the company happens to to like, Great. so ideally that's what what I see happening in our industry as well. Is people can pick and choose, um, and you know there'll be benefits to one or the other. Um, so and and I guess I, for Microvellum, I see us really having a, a large footprint in everything, starting with estimating and design, um, all the way through. Um, you know, the engineering of the products that are used in that design to custom, custom engineering, um, manufacturing processes and the shop floor field, um, management as well. So, and other industries potentially, right. Um, yeah, other kinds of industries that are conducive to what we do and maybe plastics or metal or something like that. So, awesome. um, but in our industry, I see a consolidation of, of those kinds of things all end up, single platforms yeah definitely
1: nice yeah so making it more of you know what uh is not like you said it's agnostic not tied to a signal it's more based on what what makes sense for the client and what they're using it for but the core of it is what toolbox is built to do the data in and, and the manufacturing yep. uh um, yeah we're in the
0: data business actually yeah
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well on the flip side of that what do you see staying the same over the next five to 10 years.
0: I think finding talent is going to be difficult, continue to be difficult. Yeah. I think our clients finding talent, um, you know, that, that can't, that is equipped um, and eager to participate in this industry. um, I think we need to glam it up a bit um, for that to kind of attract the people that, want to be in here that it's okay and good. And I think I do see some of that happening, mm-hmm. but I think it's gonna be very slow. Yeah. It is very slow. Yeah. And I think, again, I think this industry does move slowly, very slowly. Um, I think that that's not going to change. It's pressing in um, and we're we'll continuing to be slow adopting technologies. Uh, but I do see, I see that changing, but it's still a slow change, slow rate of change.
1: Right. Awesome. No, I agree. I, think I don't that's want awesome.
0: to think that way, but I think that that's the facts. Yeah. Yeah. No, I
1: think that's, I think it's very yeah. true. Um, and I think it's exciting to hear, you know, your thoughts specifically about microvelopment and where you see you guys go in the next five to 10 years. Um, and I'm excited to, to, uh, see that journey continue to unfold. Well, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate you taking time to, to, to share today, David, about your, your journey. Um, a lot of insights I think are really valuable for, people trying to make a career in this industry and really in any industry um, for people that are interested in finding out more about Microvellum or just about David, um, what's the best way for them to, uh, to, to reach out or to, to find out more?
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, I, I mean, our website's a great place to start, um, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, but our website, www.microvellum.com and um we're we're everywhere in all the places so awesome uh yeah
1: we'll make sure to link that for everybody in the show notes and uh look forward to having you on in the future and continuing to to uh see follow along with this journey with microfilm
0: jacob thanks for all you do again it's a pleasure i appreciate uh the chance to be on here and uh, have a, a wonderful day
1: thanks awesome absolutely thank you for listening to today's episode Do you want to stay up to date about industry insights, new content, and our community of mill workers? Go to DuckWorksMW.com to sign up for our newsletter. I'll see you in the next episode of Verify in Field.